And Lord, as we prepare our own hearts to come to your word now, again, we pray for your grace. We pray for your grace to not only see what your word says, but to understand what your word says, um, to apply it. Oh God, by your grace, may we be more than just hearers. We pray that we would be doers as well. So teach us, O O Lord, to receive your word as spiritual food, as nourishment for our souls, knowing that it is given to us by your Holy Spirit, and that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we as your people may be equipped for every good work, for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 9, going even into, verse, or into chapter 10 today, looking at uh, chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, some of you who have heard me preach two sermons on one verse might wonder, how in the world is he going to preach uh, a, a, whole pa- a whole chapter and a half. Um, some chapters just fit that way. Uh, the way that, it's, that this is all written, this is all one piece, and it, it wouldn't work to preach just one verse at a time through something like this. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 16. And this is a great passage. This whole passage, and the reason I'm, I'm extending it into the middle of chapter 10, is because this whole passage deals with the sovereignty of God, but it also gives us a picture of unregenerate man's response to the most miraculous things you can imagine. Earlier this past week, a well-known picture to point to the sovereignty of God, what biblical text would you choose? And the answer that I gave, the answer that I always think of in my mind when I'm thinking about the sovereignty of God is Daniel chapter 4, which lays out a wonderful articulation, a very succinct articulation of God's sovereignty. Uh, That chapter is actually not written by Daniel. It's actually written by King Nebuchadnezzar, who had been a prideful and a godless man for his entire life. Until he wasn't. So in that sense, he's just like everybody else that God has saved. But if you know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, you know that his story very clearly illustrates God's sovereignty. And it illustrates it in such a powerful way because King Nebuchadnezzar was such a godless and yet powerful man. Now, if you don't know the story of his conversion, it starts with him having been this uh, this Babylonian king who was very successful and who was also extremely, extremely prideful. Uh, but one night, King Nebuchadnezzar had uh, a dream that kind of bewildered him, it kind of mystified him. And so, uh, Daniel was brought in to help him understand it, uh, kind of reminiscent of how Joseph was brought in to, uh, to interpret dreams as well. Uh, yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar needed Daniel to interpret the dream for him. So Daniel comes in and he explains to King Nebuchadnezzar that it was a dream that had been given to him by God and that this dream was a picture of just how great and how prideful 
King Nebuchadnezzar had become, which leads Daniel to say this. He says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 to 27, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity." That's some wise counsel. He's basically telling King Nebuchadnezzar, the time for you to repent is is right now. But his counsel was just ignored by King Nebuchadnezzar, although it was remembered, obviously. He records it. But a year later, King Nebuchadnezzar would be on the roof of his palace in Babylon, which, of course, was the most powerful empire in the world at the time. And King Nebuchadnezzar is up on the roof thinking to himself, as he records in verse 30 of chapter 4, he says, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? I told you he was prideful. But as he was mid-thought, thinking these things to himself, the dream came to pass. The, the, The prophecy of the dream was fulfilled. He was driven out by God from uh from humanity, away from humanity, to dwell in the grass, to eat with the cows. But then King Nebuchadnezzar writes this, and and this is where God's sovereignty is really highlighted in the story, really articulated in the story. He says this, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are a counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's from Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. That is a wonderful articulation of God's sovereignty. By the way, if you ever feel like somebody's hopeless, remember this story. Because King Nebuchadnezzar from appearances would have looked like the most hopeless person in the world. But the point is that God is completely sovereign. And when I say that God's sovereign, I mean that He ordains everything. All things, everything that comes to pass, He orders and directs all of it. And the objection that people will often offer up when you give a definition like this is, well, what about, uh, what about human free will? And it's kind of amazing to me that people still ask that question because it's been answered over and over again by theologians throughout the millennia. It's almost like they don't want to know what the answer is. Uh, our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, has this to say in chapter 3 of the confession, which is titled, Of God's Decree. In paragraph 1 it says this, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things, 
whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby is God, neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in what in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now I realize that kind of sounds like listening to a Shakespeare play and you're like, what? By the time I get to like the 10th word, I get it. But to paraphrase that for you, God has decreed, he has ordained, he has ordered and directed from all of eternity past everything that transpires. However, that doesn't mean that God is responsible for or the cause of sin or wrongdoing, nor does he participate in sin or wrongdoing. He doesn't force the will of his creatures, and he doesn't remove their freedom or the unpredictability of natural processes. And so by doing this, God showcases, he demonstrates his wisdom in arranging all things, all events, and his power and his faithfulness in fulfilling what he ordains. These things are all put on display. The idea of the intermixing of God's sovereignty and and man's freedom, his free will, I I get it. It seems like there would be a conflict. It's, It's difficult for us to imagine it and wrap our minds around it. And yet, as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, we'll see that chapters 9 and 10 actually give us a wonderful illustration of God's sovereignty even over the most minute details in life. Daniel chapter 4 articulates it, it verbalizes the sovereignty of God very clearly, but 1 uh, Samuel chapters 9 and 10 illustrate it equally well. And so as we begin this chapter, we should remember that God has granted Israel basically permission to be ruled over by a mortal king, which is what they wanted. They traded uh, being ruled over by God in for being ruled over by a man. They had uh, repented of their earlier idolatry back in chapter 7, but then in chapter 8, they were ready to exchange God for a man who would rule over them. But we saw that by granting the Israelites their desire, God was handing them over to their sin, disciplining them as a means of showing them the foolishness of their, really what amounted to political idolatry, uh, of trusting in man, trusting in political figures, trusting in political institutions rather than in God, showing the foolishness of desiring to be like the world. And of course, what we saw is that we should be very careful in rejoicing when God gives us what we pray for, because sometimes he gives us what we pray for as a means of disciplining us. But in selecting Saul in, and in arranging the circumstances in which Saul and, and Samuel would, uh, would meet, we're going to see this vivid illustration of God's sovereignty over all things. But the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is that there is actually great assurance and comfort to be found in knowing that God is sovereign over every detail in life. Now, if God is sovereign, and and He is, and if God is faithfully for His people, and He is, then whom or what shall we fear? Now remember, back in chapter 8, Israel wandered astray, and God allowed them to. And yet, bringing them back is going to begin with selecting a man to be their king, a man who fits the profile of most earthly kings, which is exactly what Israel wanted. So we'll start with verses 1 to 4. 
where we read this. It says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerer, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Now take with you one of the servants and arise. Go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Now, this, these four verses already seem to be uh, just loaded with symbolism. Think of it this way. In chapter 8, Israel wandered astray. And from the moment chapter 9 begins, we're told that a bunch of donkeys have gone astray. Do you think that's a coincidence that those two things are put right next to each other? Of course not. Of course not. Why, why, why do you think that they are put together like that? It's to show us that Israel is being like a bunch of donkeys. Um, so, so why donkeys? Because they're, they're, they're born to be wild and rebellious and free, right? While horses like to live in community uh, and in a herd with other horses, donkeys just like to kind of be out doing their own thing. They usually only partner with one other uh, one mate, one other donkey, and they are stubborn. That's what they are known as. I mean, if you've ever watched uh, Gordon Ramsay, he likes to call people donkeys when they're being stubborn, right? When they're not listening. Uh, but donkeys are stubborn, and they're far more difficult to tame than horses. And so this passage begins kind of with an illustration of Israel, as these donkeys have gone astray. So the lesson between the lines here, the immediate lesson between the lines here is this. Don't be a donkey. Don't be a donkey. Don't, don't wander astray from the Lord like Israel did. Don't, don't long for the things of this world like Israel did. Don't be stubborn with God. Don't try to have your way with God. And certainly don't trade Him in for anything else or anyone else uh, like Saul would be. Now, as we're introduced to Saul, we learn that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which was uh, a very, very small tribe. The fact that he, is, uh, that he was a Benjaminite is significant because if you're looking for a mighty king, you probably don't go looking among the smallest tribe in the land. No, you look for the most powerful tribe in the land. You look for the biggest was his appearance. The way that he would strike people you know, with, with first impressions. Uh, he, he's a good-looking guy who was apparently pretty tall, apparently the tallest guy in all of Israel. And as a bonus, his father is even described as a mighty man of valor. So, so maybe he's got some of those genes himself of being a, a warrior, a mighty warrior. But it's interesting that we're told that he was the tallest man in the country because whenever in Scripture, whenever uh, somebody, a, a leader's stature, his size is noted anywhere else, uh, it's always describing a leader who didn't know God and who would be an enemy of God and his people. But let me give you a little spoiler here. So is King Saul. He's an enemy of God. 
and he's an enemy of God's people. He doesn't know God. And thus it's not surprising that Saul will actually not give Israel the leadership that they need. He'll, he'll be able to be a, a, a warrior, okay. But what about spiritual leadership? He, he's, he's got nothing there. Because he doesn't know the Lord. In fact, he is a godless, self, uh, selfish man who tries his best to keep any spiritual leadership from taking over his throne. But he has the charm. Right? He looks good. He looks like the kind of guy we'd want to rally behind. He's got the physique. He's got the genes to get the people excited about rallying behind, the, behind him. And that's all too often exactly how it works with politics, which is why politics can be such a trap. But obviously, this all illustrates the frailty and the absolute foolishness of leaning on our own wisdom and our own understanding. It's a reminder that we can be captivated and make judgments based on appearances and can easily miss the wiser options. Scripture tells us that God is the one who looks at the heart. We're the ones who are looking at people's appearance. God looks at the heart. Most of us can probably look back and imagine how much better our lives would be if only we had made uh, better decisions, where, where we judged something by appearances or made some wrong decisions because of how something looked or seemed on the surface. And we can think as we look back on our lives, oh, that was so foolish. That was so messed up. How could I have done that? And how has that affected my life now? Well, let me just say this. You don't have to worry about bad decisions that you have made. Do you know why that is? It's because God is still sovereign. God is still in control. He knew that you were going to make those decisions, whatever they may be. And He can work with you right now wherever you are. In fact, if you're a Christian, He is working with you. Just like God was actually in this passage still working with Israel here in our text. As we'll learn later on, it is not an accident that the donkeys have gone astray. Uh, their wandering not only gives us an illustration of Israel, but their wandering also creates the circumstances in which Saul and Samuel will meet. Again, don't, work, don't, don't miss the way that, that, uh, that God is working in the minute details here between the lines. Let's continue, verses 5 to 10. It says, Then they came to the land of Zuf. Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will be anxious for us. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go see, uh, let us go to the seer, for he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Well, the donkeys were not anywhere near the region of Saul's father. 
obviously they have wandered pretty far astray. Uh, they, they look through all the local countrysides, and when the donkeys are nowhere to be found, they need to, uh, to widen their search, expand their search. And again, I believe that this is significant, not only because it creates the circumstances in which Saul and Samuel will meet, but it's also, I believe, an illustration of how far uh, Israel had strayed and how quickly it had happened. And that is exactly how wandering happens. You, you might think you're just taking a step or two away from God, and you end up a million miles away before you know it. So, so they come to the land of Zuf, which is far enough away uh, that it makes Saul concerned that it's going to take them so long to get back home that his father will start to worry about their whereabouts instead of the whereabouts of the donkeys. But Saul's servant knows that since they're in the land of Zuf, uh, that's, that's where Ramah, which is uh, Samuel's hometown, they, they know that uh, he knows that they're, they're near that place. Uh, so he says, let's go see this man of God. Of course, he's speaking about Samuel. But the servant has heard that everything that Samuel says comes true. Everything that Samuel says comes to pass, meaning that Samuel was actually a true prophet. Uh, and thus, he suggests that they go and see this man of God, Samuel, for counsel and advice in finding the donkeys. But one of the things that I want us to see here is that this was Saul's servant's idea. It was not Saul's idea. Saul apparently had no idea that they were in the vicinity of the hometown of this man of God, of Samuel. Uh, what becomes apparent here is that Saul has actually never even heard of Samuel. And that seems really strange because we've been told that Samuel spent his life traveling around all of Israel and ministering to the tribes of Israel all of his days. We were told that all the people in the country recognized him as a true prophet from God. So how is it that Samuel, you know, he's got this position of high esteem in Israel, a good reputation in Israel as a man of God, and yet Saul has never even heard of him. How is that? Well, I'd say this indicates the kind of man that Saul was. Samuel would come to town, but Saul would pay no mind. So Saul seems like he's an all right guy. I mean, he's just like everybody else. His, his father believed that he was a dependable enough person, that uh, you know, he was the one that he sent out to find the donkeys. Uh, and yet Saul wasn't a man whose heart yearned for God. His heart didn't chase after God. His heart didn't desire God. He wasn't a spiritually minded man by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, the only alternative is to think that the tribe of Benjamin would be the one place that Samuel never went, but that's not an option. He did go there. He did go to the tribe of Benjamin. And when he did, what's clear here is that Saul took a pass. He paid no mind. In all sincerity, it's sounding like Saul just had no familiarity whatsoever that Israel even had a spiritual leader. William Blakey notes in his commentary, he says, quote, Does not this indicate a family living entirely outside of all religious connections, entirely immersed in secular things, caring nothing about godly people, and hardly ever even pronouncing their names? End quote. So what we should see right off the bat here 
since we were just introduced to Saul you know, a few verses ago, is that he appeared to have all these qualities that we would want to find in a king who would be suitable for Israel, but that he was lacking the criteria which should have been at the top of the list. He was lacking in spiritual affections, spiritual appetite. He was lacking a walk with God. He was lacking a loyalty to God. And he was lacking an ability to lead and to govern Israel in a way that would be pleasing to God and which would lead the people of God back to God. You see, that's the king of Israel that was needed. That's the kind of king that they, that they desperately had a need for, but it's not the kind of king that would have been appealing to them. It's not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a king that would be like the kings of the nations. And here it is that we see that there's this enormous difference between Samuel and Saul. Samuel was the kind of leader that Israel needed. He had led Israel to truly repent before God back in chapter 7. He had spent his lifetime ministering and traveling to minister among the tribes of Israel. But Saul will not be this type of leader. And, And truth be told, Israel just didn't want that kind of leader. But Saul realizes that he has nothing to give this man of God as a gift. He at least recognizes that there's some custom where you give the man of God a a gift. But once again, he has no answers. He has no solutions. Rather, it's the servant who comes to the rescue. He has a fourth of a shekel of silver. Are you noticing how much Saul relies on somebody else to lead here, by the way? Saul looks the part, but he's in no way fit to be a king or a leader, not in a physical sense and absolutely not in a spiritual sense. My only thought here is this, as I was going through this, my only thought here is this, is that the day will come when I'll be like Samuel. When the the torch that I have spent my life carrying as your pastor will need to be passed on to someone else. Uh, I've I've had many, many friends in ministry grow grow weary of the whole process of applying to be a pastor. And the reason so many of my friends have grown weary of of applying and, and going through this whole process of becoming a pastor someplace has to do with uh, the fact that too many churches are looking for a Saul instead of a Samuel. What do I mean by that? I mean that churches are looking for somebody who would be a really outgoing, engaging speaker with this outgoing personality who has at least five years' experience leading a church of 5,000 members to experience dynamic growth and yada, yada, yada when what they should be looking for is somebody who fits the qualifications for leadership that are outlined in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. Those are the qualifications. No more, no less. And yet, if you look at most listings that churches put out there for candidates for ministry, they are not looking for somebody who fits those qualifications. They're looking for a Saul instead of a Samuel. Now, it is far better to have a man who doesn't have the dynamic personality, who doesn't have the good looks and charm. Thankfully, you guys weren't looking for that when you hired me. But who has a desire to faithfully love and serve the Lord and His people, than it is to have 
a man who just looks the part, but whose heart is far away from God. The sad reality, friends, is that many churches in our age aren't all that different from apostate Israel when they go and look for a new pastor. Please, if I should ever pass suddenly or unexpectedly, if the Lord should ever suddenly call me home without notice, and this does happen to churches all the time, look for a Samuel. Look for a Samuel, not a Saul. Hopefully, Lord willing, we're at least 20 years away from that decision, but only the Lord knows. So Saul and his servant, they feel like they're ready to go and meet Samuel, and so they head off to the city where Samuel, this man of God, was located. Let's continue, verses 11 to 14. It says, as they were going... Up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, uh, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city, and they came into the city. Behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. So sure enough, the people of the city know all about Samuel. In fact, Samuel just got there that day. What a coincidence. No, it's a divine appointment. Saul and his servant encounter these young women who are drawing water, and they inquire about this man of God. Of course, that's Samuel. And they're directed to go into the city because Samuel happened to be there on that day. And as they head into the city, they run right into Samuel as he's on his way to the high place. Now, if you take a purely naturalistic point of view, you'd say, wow, that's a lot of coincidences. No, this is all divine appointments. Now remember that Samuel spent his life traveling around Israel, ministering to all the tribes. What are the odds that he would be in this city on this day, presumably Ramah, which is his hometown, on that very day? And what are the odds that they would run into him? Friends, here we are plainly and irrefutably confronted with God's sovereignty. Here we clearly and irrefutably see that God has orchestrated every single last minute detail, and yet we cannot deny that Saul and his servant have gone there freely. Do they exercise their free will? Absolutely. Was God sovereign? Absolutely. There's no conflict. They work together. God has orchestrated this whole encounter. The relationship between God's sovereign decree and man's free will, I get it, it's kind of mysterious to us, but it is nevertheless undeniably a reality. In Richard Phillips' words, he says this, he says, quote, God's utter sovereignty over even the smallest details of life does not conflict with the full expression of human choice and will, end quote. And this was particularly reinforced when we learned that Samuel has actually been expecting them, which we're going to learn as we continue. Uh, Let's look at verses 15 to 21. It says, Now 
A day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for all whom is all that is desirable in Israel, is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjaminite, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the, uh, the families of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? So Saul and his servant uh, had no idea that their arrival, their presence, was actually expected by Samuel. God had told Samuel about 24 hours prior to around the same time on the following day uh, that the man of God's sovereign choosing would be sent to visit Samuel. And when Saul had come near to Samuel, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people." So this is no chance encounter. In fact, as mind-blowing as it might seem, God being sovereign means that there is no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as chance or luck. Now, I get it. The the natural mind, the, the skeptic, will respond to that idea by saying something like, you're telling me that if I were to flip a coin, that there's no such thing as luck or chance. You're telling me that it's, it's God, that God is the one who ordains whether it lands on heads or tails? And yes, that is exactly what I am telling you. Because God is sovereign over even the smallest details of His universe, there is no such thing as coincidence or chance or fate or luck or any of those synonyms. That also means that he really can, in his power and in his wisdom and in his goodness, order all things in such a way that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. What would a sermon be without Romans 8.28, right? The question I have then is this. If you can see God's sovereignty here, if you can see at least intellectually, the way that God is sovereign over all of these details. How can anyone not love and trust a God like this? How can somebody not love and trust a God who is sovereign over all things, from the biggest events to the smallest details of life? How can you not love and trust a God like that? If God were not good, or if He were not all-wise or all-powerful, I can understand living in you know, faithlessness or living in fear. But God is good. He is all-wise. He is omniscient, omnipotent. Nothing is impossible for Him. He could not possibly be 
more trustworthy than he already is. Those who know him and love him and serve him should be greatly, greatly comforted by these truths about who God is. Because that has implications into our lives. He ordains the peaks, but you know what? He also ordains the valleys. And it's all according to His sovereign plans. He knows what's best for us. We think we know what's best for us. We think that it would be better if this or that happened. God knows. We know nothing. We know nothing. We should also see that even in Israel's rebellion, even in her unfaithfulness toward God, God remains faithful to His people. He hears their cry. One of the tasks to which Saul is called as, as a king is to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And by God's grace, He will. They were still a threat. The Philistines were still an enemy. But these are precious things to consider when we think about how many times Israel walked away or wandered astray from God. How many times they forsook the Lord and rebelled against Him. One commentator notes this. He says, if you are a child of God, you rejoice to see that your sin does not dry up the fountain of His compassions and that His pity refuses to let go of His people. End quote. What a blessing it is. What unmerited grace it is that God cared for and remained faithful to his people, even when they wandered astray like a bunch of donkeys. Now, don't forget that what God did toward his people then, he still does now. He's, he's not only sovereign and all knowing and uh, all powerful and all wise and good, he's also unchanging. The God that we see in our text here is the same God who's God of the universe today. The same God we're here gathered together to worship and serve today. Israel couldn't see how faithful God was remaining to His people. But we're supposed to see that. Even in their wandering, God is faithful to them. God still hears their cries. So Samuel invites Saul to the high place where he would eat and spend the night with Samuel. He's told not to worry about the donkeys. Uh, they've been found. Uh, Samuel is, uh, is, is overwhelming Saul, obviously, with the honor that he is showing to Saul. Saul has no true concept of grace, of unmerited favor like he's been shown. After all, he's, he's just from this little tribe of Benjamin. But the grace that Samuel is showing Saul is the grace that God has shown Samuel himself, which is a reminder, of course, to us that those whom God has been gracious toward should themselves be gracious people toward others. Now, the section that follows is going to be kind of long. Uh, it takes us several verses into the next chapter. It's going to record uh, the honor that Saul uh, is extended by Samuel. The, the private ceremonial anointing of Saul and also Samuel's instructions for Saul. So let's continue from chapter 9, verse 22, to chapter 10, verse 8. It says, Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the leg 
with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time, since I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they, went, and they arose early. And at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be, as soon as you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It, will, it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do." Now again, Saul hasn't done anything to receive this kind of privilege, this kind of, of favor. He doesn't deserve any of this. It's grace. It's completely unexpected. You might say it's coming out of left field. That's, that's our colloquial, colloquialism for it. But Saul has shown the absolute highest honor that any man can be shown. And, and it, it must have been just overwhelming for him, if not entirely intoxicating to his ego. He was seated at the head of this table of 30 men, which would be the most distinguished seat at the table, of course. He was given the finest selection of meat uh, as a meal at the table. Uh, if he hadn't been a religious person before, here we see him showered with grace. And, and at least it has to be a sense of God's grace that he's at least starting to feel here, you would think. But Samuel wakes him up the next morning and, and uh, he you know, is ready for, to, to, send Samuel, uh, to send Saul off to start his journey home. And he instructs Saul to send his servant ahead of him. And what follows as we then reach chapter 10 is a description uh, of a private ceremony of Saul's anointing uh, between Samuel and Saul in which Saul is told that God has chosen him to be Israel's first king. Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Samuel says to Saul. 
Samuel then proceeds to give him this, this incredibly detailed account of all the things that are going to transpire as Saul makes his journey home. Uh, The details are laid out in very, very specific language so that there are even minute details like three goats, two loaves of bread, things like that. Specific numbers. There's nothing vague about any of this. No, he's told that there there are going to be certain things that will come to pass. Unlike palm readers and uh, occultic fortune tellers, there is nothing vague about what Samuel prophesies here. So why does Samuel do this? Why does he lay out all of these details, one after another, for Saul? The reason is so that Saul might find every reason to believe that this is true. It's because Saul might find reason to doubt that he's really been appointed by God to be the king. And so the prophecy of all these events uh, that, that Samuel gives to him, that yes, indeed, it is true that God has appointed, anointed Saul to be the king. Saul would be so overwhelmed by this that when the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, he would even start prophesying with the prophets of Israel. He would be made into a new man, Samuel says. Saul was then to wait a week in Gilgal for for Samuel to arrive, Gilgal being the same location where Joshua once renewed Israel's covenant with God. Uh, but once Samuel arrived, he'd make, uh, Samuel would make burnt offerings and peace offerings on Israel's behalf as a sign of thanks, uh, giving thanks to God, presumably for the victory that Saul would have over these Philistines that he was going to encounter on the way home. But looking at the bigger picture, expanding the picture and looking at Saul's life as a whole, what we have to understand is that this, this good news, this wonderful grace that Samuel has shown to Saul would be like good seed scattered on dead, rocky soil. In the end, what we're going to see is that Saul was too worldly-minded of a man, so worldly-minded that, yes, this would be a life-changing encounter, a life-changing experience for him, but it would not be uh, an experience that would change his life for the better. What it would do is inflate his ego. What we have illustrated for us here as we examine Saul's life from this point onward is the doctrine that we refer to as total depravity. Saul is given every reason in the world here in our text to become a godly and God-fearing man. He can surely see that every detail, even down to the most minute and the most subtle detail, was orchestrated by God, and yet the rest of his life will be characterized by faithlessness and unbelief in God. So what are we supposed to do with with Saul being given a new heart, as Samuel says, and having the Spirit of the Lord upon him? Well, first of all, the new heart that we read of here doesn't speak of the same new heart that Ezekiel would prophesy of. Ezekiel's prophecy was a prophecy related to the new covenant. Uh, According to Ezekiel, the new heart and the, the second birth would serve a very specific purpose. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, we read this, Uh, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 
So what was that purpose of the new heart in the new covenant? The purpose was being careful to observe God's statutes and ordinances. Walking in obedience and faith in God. But Saul's life would not be characterized in the least bit by these things. So what was the purpose of Samuel saying that God's Spirit would come upon Saul? Richard Phillips has a good explanation. He says this in his commentary. He says, quote, The best answer recognizes that in the Old Testament, God sometimes sent His Spirit to enable chosen servants to perform designated tasks. God's Spirit gave Saul a new sense of calling so that in this limited sense, we can say that he received a new heart. End quote. But as our passage concludes, even here it will be evident that Saul's nature would remain unchanged. He is still of a darkened mind, an unregenerate mind. So let's continue. Verses 9 to 16 of chapter 10. It says, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. So all the things that Samuel had prophesied, had foretold, came to transpire exactly as he had laid out. Every detail was fulfilled. Saul had every reason, therefore, in the world to devote the rest of his life to glorifying and enjoying God. And yet when he gets home and his uncle asks where he went, Samuel had nothing to say about what he had seen and what he had experienced. He says that he spoke to Samuel, but when his uncle presses him for details, he only says of Samuel, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. As if that was the only thing that had happened. But the text concludes by telling us he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. In other words, he didn't tell anybody that he had been anointed as the king by God. This is a reminder for us that even the most incredible, even the most vivid, even the most dramatic encounters with God are not evidence of salvation. When you hear people talk about how they've had these crazy experiences and crazy visions, and God said this to me and God said that to me, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. It's not evidence of salvation. So if that isn't evidence of salvation, what is? I'd say a greater miracle than those things. We'll start with the list with things like faith, which produces 
obedience and ongoing repentance. It includes, uh, the list, list includes love, enduring, persevering love for God and for His ways, not to mention for His people. And Saul has none of these things, sadly. Saul would stir in the people, ultimately, by his own rebellion and his own godlessness, he would stir up in the people a desire for a godly king, a greater king, a king who serves the Lord and not man. And while David would be his successor, obviously, and would be described as being a man after God's own heart, even David was only a man and a very flawed man. But David would nevertheless be a king who would foreshadow an even greater king, the greatest king. In fact, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when you, when you compare him with Saul, they're completely different characters. They're completely unlike one another. Saul was this very attractive man. Jesus was very ordinary in appearance. Isaiah foretold of Jesus in Isaiah 53 verse 2, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Totally different from Saul. Saul was prideful. Saul was often a man who would veil his cowardliness. Jesus, on the other hand, was humble, meek, and veiled his power and glory. The greatest difference, of course, is that Saul was only interested in doing the will of Saul while Jesus came to do the will of God the Father. In fact, Jesus confirmed that in John chapter 8, verse 29, when he said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Just as Saul had every reason to become a man of faith who was devoted entirely unto God. Friends, you have every reason to become a person of faith and to devote yourself unto God by faith in Christ Jesus as well. Scripture bears witness to the fact that Jesus made once and for all the one offering for sin that would satisfy God's wrath against our sin. He did that by dying on the cross in the place of those who would believe on Him. And the Scriptures and history both attest to the fact that three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. People have spent 2,000 years trying to debunk these things and it's never been done. And so you have 2,000 years to look back on a failed attempt to disprove this stuff, thereby giving you every reason in the world to believe. Friends, God ordains every detail of human existence that comes to pass, and yet man has free will. For the Christian, therefore, there is great assurance and comfort to be found in knowing that God is sovereign over all things. For those who are not Christians, for those who have not believed in Jesus, there is no comfort or assurance to be found in the fact that God is sovereign over all things. But what you should understand is that God has even ordained that you would be here even today to hear this message, to go through this passage, to see the foolishness of not believing when you have every reason in the world to believe. If God is sovereign and in control of all things, and He is, and if He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise and true, and He's, he's all of these things and more, then you can trust 
in all of His promises, including the promise that in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. That's the promise we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Friends, the, the fact is there's salvation. There is forgiveness of sins in no other name. God's promises, God's purposes never fail. What He has promised, what He has decreed, what He has ordained will come to pass. And He has promised that Christ will return one day to judge the living and the dead. And of course, when I say the living, I'm referring to those who have put their faith in Christ. To those whose sins have been credited to Christ, imputed to Christ and who are now therefore clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness, His perfect robes of righteousness. I'm talking about people who have received the new heart in the new covenant. I'm talking about people because, who because they have received the new heart, because they have been born again, their lives have therefore produced good fruit like obedience, love, Devotion, repentance. Friends, Christ will return to separate the sheep from the goats. And so if Christ should return tomorrow, will you be numbered among the living, among the faithful? Or will you be found in unbelief like Saul was? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it reveals You to be this God who is sovereign. A God who is good, all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign over all things. A God we could never imagine with our own imaginations, and yet, yet Your Word reveals You to be this great God who is beyond our ability to wrap our minds around entirely. We thank You for the truths that Your Word reveals about You, including Your sovereignty and including our responsibility to respond to Your Word, to Your promises in faith. We thank You for the gift of faith that You have given us. Oh Lord, nothing good comes from us. Whatever good might be found in us, we know that it's from You. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that by your grace you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, we pray that our lives would not resemble Saul. That as we consider every reason to believe in Jesus, that our hearts would be filled with faith. That we would believe. That we would trust in you and trust in your promises, including the promise that all who are in Christ will be forgiven, and including the promise that you are causing all things to work ultimately for our growth in Christ's likeness. Only a God who is all powerful, all wise, good, and true could make these promises. And God, you are that God who can do those things. So we pray that our lives would be marked by faithfulness by love for you, by devotion unto you. 
and that it would be a testimony before the world around us of your grace. We thank you that that grace is found in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.